Thank you, Joel. That song, I love that song. One of the things I love about that song is that it reminds me of how astonished I am. Full atonement, can that even be? Is it possible that all that I've done can be completely paid for? And here, I'll just confess to y'all, I just, Sunday morning, I feel great and I get going on with my day. And to be honest, I, I stop feeling the amazement. And I just, I kind of get caught up in my day. And that song brings me back to think, do you understand how amazing it is that a person like me can be atoned for? I love that. I really, really love that. Thank you, Joel. Well, this morning, I'll, I'll tell you something. A, a very first in my life is... As I was studying this passage, I actually read a commentary that introduced our passage by reading or quoting from Dr. Seuss. And I've never had Dr. Seuss be an introduction to a message, but it's going to be today because I thought it was very helpful to me. And I've asked Zane Miller to come up and read for us. So Zane, I'm getting this microphone set up for you. And Zane is going to read to us. Zane, let me make sure this microphone's on. I'm going to give you, you got a little mic stand. And let's see if it's, is it a good height for you? Does that work? Uh, let, let me tell him one thing. We are, Zane is reading Dr. Seuss, and this is the story of the Sneetches. So Zane, go ahead. Frankfurter.
Very good, Zane. So what do star-bellied and plain-bellied sneezes have to do with Matthew chapter 15? That's where we're at today, Matthew 15. So we can go ahead and start turning our, our Bibles there. Um, if you take Joel's New Testament class, which is going to start in two weeks, when he opens up, I, I'm assuming the first book you'll study is the, is the Gospel of Matthew. And you're, Joel's going to have to explain to you who was the gospel written to? And what Joel will tell you, because this is what every scholar will tell you, is that Matthew, I assume you will tell them, <laughs> is that Matthew was written to the Jews, right? But we can make a mistake here and assume that because Matthew was written to the Jews, that means that Matthew was approving of the Jews, right? And that is not the case. That is not the case. What we see here throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew, is that Matthew viewed many of the Jews, especially the Jewish leadership, as kind of like these star-bellied sneeches. They thought, we come from Abraham, and so we're really important. We worship at the temple, so we are very significant, right? We have the Bible, the Gentiles don't. Right? We keep all the laws and the Gentiles don't. And these were the stars on the Jewish bellies. And they thought this has to make us right with God. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus walks right on past the star-bellied sneeches. And he heads into the, the land where they had none upon theirs. Right? No, no stars on their bellies. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that the same thing that was going on in this story is the same thing that seems to be going on in Jesus' mind. These sneeches had what they thought was important was all the wrong things. They thought stars made a difference. We think our heritage, we think whether or not um, the Jews thought Jew or Gentile, but we think what church did I go to? Do I attend every Sunday? Am I from the right parents? Am I on the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks? Even we think sometimes our moral deeds have made us right with God. Jesus is going to walk right on past these people. Right on past the star-bellied sneeches. And he's going to reach out to the people who never got invited to the Frankfurter party. And he's going to say, we're, what we're going to find out is that what it takes to get right with God is something completely different than you might have expected. Um... Let me state from the outset before we read this together one big main idea that I want us to walk away with. I believe as we study Matthew, we're going to read a whole lot. We're going to start in Matthew 15. We're going to start in verse uh, 21, and we're going to go all the way through 1620. So we're going to do a lot, cover a lot of material. But there's all of it boiled down to one big idea. There is only one way to be in with God. And that is through believing and confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? So that's, that's the point. If you want to know, it doesn't matter if you have a star on your belly or not. There's only one way to be in with or to be right with God. And that is to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you have your Bibles open, let's just start reading together right away. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll start reading in 21. 
When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman came out from the region and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. Yet he didn't say a word to her. So his disciples approached him and they urged him, Send her away because she cries out after us. And he replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and he sat there. And large crowds came to him, having with them lame and blind, the deformed, those unable to speak, many others. He put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed. And when they saw those who were unable to speak talking and the deformed restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing, they gave glory to the God of Israel. Now Jesus summoned his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse in the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks and broke them and kept on giving them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were filled, and they collected leftover pieces, seven baskets full, seven large baskets full. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat, and he went to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and the Sadducees approached him, and as a test, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered, when evening comes, you say, it'll be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation wants a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. The disciples reached the other shore, and they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the disciples discussed it among themselves, but we didn't bring any bread. Aware of this, Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you don't have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you had collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it that you don't understand that when I told you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I wasn't talking about bread? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast and the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, they asked his disciples, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave his disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we ask first that you send your Holy Spirit to give me clarity and wisdom as I speak, to give everyone in here an open heart and mind to understand and feel correctly as we listen to and sit under the authority of your word. I pray that you will even now begin to convict us of our sin and convince us of the amazing, amazing grace that was offered, full atonement in your son, and so that as we leave here, your spirit will have worked in our hearts so that we're singing from the depths of our soul, hallelujah, Lord is faithful. We pray this in your name, amen. That was a long passage, a long passage, but you probably think it almost all sounded really familiar, especially if, you, if you've been sitting through this whole Matthew study, which has lasted a very long time already. Some of it is seeming like, didn't we already read almost these exact same stories? And really, we did. Only two, only the very beginning and the very end seem different, but you've already heard about Jesus going and doing miracles where he's healing the blind and restoring uh, hearing to the deaf and deformities and, and you've you've heard of it that was two whole chapters dedicated to that in chapters eight and nine right the feeding of the four thousand and we just read in matthew 14 where jesus fed five thousand people and this story is remarkably similar to that the, the main difference is the number of people fed and the number of leftover baskets but really, the story is so, so similar. Even Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, they say, show us a sign, which they had already asked that of Jesus. I think that was in chapter, uh, I think that was in chapter 12. Yeah, that was in chapter 12. Jesus said, they said, Jesus, show us a sign. Jesus said, I'm not showing you a sign except for the sign in Jonah, the exact same things he had said just a few chapters ago. So the really startling thing about what we've just read is it's all repeat. What makes this worth repeating? And I think the answer to that was in the very first verse we read. The very first verse we read, Matthew 15, 21, Jesus had departed there and he went into the area of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, location, location, location. Location is the meaning of this passage. It's all wrapped into, it's not what he did, but where he did it. Because in all these other miracles we've looked at, Jesus had gone to minister to the Jews. And now he stepped out of the Jewish world and entered into the land of the Gentiles. 
and he's doing these same miracles and same ministry to a whole new group of people. And then this first story, which is one of the few new things in the story, really emphasizes that. Because Jesus says, or, or Matthew tells us, when Jesus gets to Tyre and Sidon, the first person that comes up to him is a Canaanite woman. Canaanite. She's Gentile. She's not, she's not one of the people of Israel. And she wants Jesus to help. And Jesus says, I can't help. She's not Jewish. Right? So Jesus is trying to make us think this is a Jew-Gentile thing. And Jesus says something that's very star-bellied, sneech-sounding. Right? I'm not going to take what was meant for the children of Israel and give it to the Jews, basically, to the Gentiles. Because that's not who, I didn't come for her. Sounds rude, even. And she responds, well, just to emphasize how rude it sounded, Jesus said, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Right? I mean, that's, that sounds rude. But it's clear as we keep reading the story that he said this because he's going to draw out from her what he hasn't seen from any of the Jews. He's going to draw out from her something truly unique. And she says, that's right. She says, that's absolutely right. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, now that's real faith. Jesus says, that's impressive faith. And this starts a ministry where Jesus is ministering to the people. He said, I didn't even come for. But now he's healing the Gentiles. He's blind Gentiles are seeing. Deaf, uh, deaf Gentiles are hearing. Right? Crippled Gentiles are having their bodies restored to them. The effects of the curse, the effects of sin are being reversed, not in the land where the people had stars on their bellies, but in the people who had none. And it started with this thing where Jesus says, I didn't come from you, but now I'm here, and I'm doing all the things that I did for the Jews, but the difference is how they're responding. Because look at what they do. When the Jews respond, when the Jews saw these miracles, what did they say? They said, how does he do these miracles? Maybe it's by the power of Beelzebub. Maybe he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. But that's not what the Gentiles said. Look at what the Gentiles say. He cast out all these, uh, he, he's doing all these miracles. And in verse uh, 31, the crowd is amazed. They saw those unable to speak, talking, and the deformed restored, the lame walking, and the blind uh, seeing. And look at what they say. They gave glory to the God of Israel. The people with no stars in their bellies, the outsiders, the, one that, the people who had nothing to recommend them, who just called themselves dogs happy to eat the crumbs from the master's table, see what the master does and say, the God of Israel is really awesome. That's astounding. It's astounding. It's the exact same things that are happening. The exact same things that the, the Jews saw and rejected, the Gentiles are seeing, and they're saying, this God is awesome. He's worth following. 
Jesus does another miracle. One of the biggest miracles that everyone knows is the feeding of the 5,000. But Jesus goes and does almost the exact same thing to a Jewish, I'm sorry, to a Gentile people. Feeds them 4,000 people, feeds them fish and loaves. And he's saying the God who came to save the Gentile, to save the Jews is saving the Gentiles as well. It's an awesome story that's just full of faith and excitement and you're seeing God do big things until, unfortunately, you have to turn back to the Jews. And the, fa- the Sadducees and Pharisees say the same tired lines that they've been saying back in chapter 12. How do we really know this is worth believing? What really makes you so worth following? And Jesus says, you're a wicked, wicked generation. The same thing that these people who didn't have a Bible, they didn't have an Old Testament, they didn't have a temple, they didn't come from Abraham, they see these things and they respond in faith and glory to God, and you see them and say, "Mm, I'm still hedging my bets, I still don't know. The point of this passage seems to be that the the Gentiles have accepted what the Jews would never accept. The point of what's going on, I think Matthew is saying, is You are condemned because the people without stars in their belly have done with what the privileged star belly sneakers never would do. You had every advantage. You had every advantage. And you squandered it. I think um, it's helpful to go back and try to think a little bit about why is Matthew again writing this gospel. And it's true, I believe, that Matthew is writing a gospel predominantly to argue to a Jewish population. But I think there's an important reason why he's having to argue to them. And that's because the church that Matthew belongs to is not made up exclusively or probably even primarily of Jewish people. There are... There is a church, by the time that Matthew is writing his gospel, that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And I think there are star-bellied snitches that say we are turning up our nose at the people who don't have stars in their belly. And And Matthew is saying, Jesus didn't turn up his nose. Jesus went out and accepted them. And in fact, the very reason that he accepted them is because you rejected him over and over and over. There's a, uh, I think, a, a, a point to this, or, or at least an application we can make from this, that if, if you and I want to be like Jesus, then we need to go to the people who don't seem worthy, right? If we want to be like Jesus, we don't look for more star-bellied snitches. If we want to be like Jesus, we go to the people who look like They don't have any of the advantages. They don't know the Bible. They haven't lived a perfectly moral life. They they don't have a perfect church attendance record. But we know that Jesus loved them and went to them and he performed miracles. And those are the people who turned their heart to Jesus. I think Matthew is writing this gospel and especially this section 
to tell these star-bellied sneeches to quit turning their nose up. To start recognizing God's working in people that don't look like you or act like you or have the same background as you. And you have to be willing to accept the people that Jesus has loved and accepted. In the Dr. Seuss story, if Zane had kept on reading, Dr. Seuss takes it in a different way than Matthew does. What Dr. Seuss tries to prove is that your stars don't matter at all. And to a certain degree, Matthew would say the same thing. I don't care if you've been at church all the day or if you've, if, if you've never been church. That's not what gets you in with God. But what Dr. Seuss ends up seeming to say is that everybody's fine. Everybody's good. Everybody's fine. Don't worry about it. But that's not what Matthew's saying. Matthew is saying that the stars on their bellies don't make them right with God, but he's not saying who cares about stars, or he's not saying who cares if you're right with God, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are a wicked generation who he warns over and over and over again that they're in danger of hellfire. So the Sneetches in Dr. Seuss's book are asking, what do I need to do to get in? And Dr. Seuss says, don't worry about it, everybody's in. But Matthew's not saying that. Matthew's saying it's a good question. You should ask, what should I do to get in? But stop expecting that your heritage or your history or your background is what's going to get you in. What would Matthew say gets us in? What gets us right with God according to Matthew, according to Jesus? We could just look at the examples we've already been given and and gather our answer. We could look at this lady who said, I'm not even worthy to eat the crumbs that fall from your table, and we could get our answer there. But what I'd like to do is try to move a little bit farther in the passage and get a very succinct, clear answer of what does it take to be in with God? What kind of star is Jesus actually looking for? To help us answer that, I want us to look really a little bit more intensely for the rest of our time together at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And I'm just going to read them all together one more time. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you... Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Jesus asks his disciples two questions. And these two questions, I think that we find really the answer that distinguishes what gets us right with God versus what keeps us out. Not what do people think are the stars worth having, but what does God think is the star worth having. 
they answer first with, with the wrong stars, right? Who do people say that I am? His disciples say, people think that you are John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, which seems like a good thing. They think that you are a spokesperson from God. They think that you're a good person. You're generally well accepted by people, Jesus. But it's clear that this isn't enough. Jesus isn't contented to be a good person. He doesn't even leave the option of being a good person open to us. I've read several times here C.S. Lewis's quote of, don't ever come with the nonsense of Jesus being a good man. He doesn't open that up to us. He's either a liar, and to, to preface this, Jesus claims to be God himself. He is either lying about that claim, in which case he's not God and not good. He's a lunatic who thinks he's God, but he's not, and none of us think lunatics are genuinely swell kind of people, or he really is who he says he is, and he's the Lord. Don't say he's a pretty good guy. Jesus turns to the disciples, or he turns to the disciples and asks them another question. He says, who do you say that I am? And this time we get the right answer. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is probably the hinge verse, possibly the most central verse of the entire gospel of Matthew. What is Matthew writing to get us all to understand that this confession, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, this is it. This is the big point. And this is what gives us right standing with God or wrong standing with God. So I want to unpack it a little bit. It's really a two-part confession. He wants us to say that he is the Messiah, and he wants us to say he's the Son of the living God. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the Messiah? What does that mean? Or the Christ. Some, some of your Bibles will say Messiah. Some will say Christ. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. But what do they mean? It's not enough to say that they mean the same thing if we don't know what either means. What they mean is that Jesus is the one that the Old Testament has promised us about. Joel read several verses tonight of, from the Old Testament saying from Isaiah that there's a promised one who's coming. But that promise began before Isaiah. It began all the way back in Genesis. There was a sin. Adam and Eve committed a sin in the garden. They ate fruit from a tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. And the time that they ate that, death entered into the picture. They were immediately separated from God. They could not be in front of God. They were hiding from him. They recognized their separation from God. They were subject to death. And immediately upon that, what God did is began a process to reverse that. And he made a promise. Immediately what he did is he clothed them. He covered them himself. But he promised that I'm sending someone who's going to take care of this problem entirely. He's going to destroy the serpent who started this whole thing. The Messiah is the one that is promised in Genesis 3 that will destroy sin and will destroy the one who introduced sin into our whole system. 
The Messiah is the one that's promised over and over. He's the coming king. He's the coming redeemer. He is like Moses who leads people out of their slavery. He's like Joshua who leads them into a promised land. He's over and over and over. The promised one that's coming is the son of this woman. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Isaac. He's the son of Jacob. And he's the one that's coming to deliver us from sin and lead us into an eternal, peaceful kingdom in which sin is no more. But I think Peter means more than just I recognize the Bible storyline here. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, he's not just recognizing what the Bible storyline says. He's also recognizing that what the Bible says is true. What he's saying is, I agree that sin has come into our world and wrecked it. I agree that when I look around, I see families that are broken and devastated. Saying, I agree that there is a need for someone to come and fix the world. And it's not just, Peter would say, it's not just the world that's wrecked. It's me that's wrecked. It's not just that I turn on the news and I see sin in the news. If I'm honest with myself, I look into my heart and I see sin in my heart. Peter's not just saying I understand the story of the Bible. He's saying the story of the Bible is true and it means that I myself am a sinner. And when I trust that Christ is the Messiah, I'm trusting that he's the one who can fix my problem. I know that I'm wicked. I know that I'm evil. I know that I, just like Adam and Eve, deserve to be separated from God. He's saying, I believe that you're the one that was promised to make me right again. He still didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. But he knew Jesus was the one that was going to make it happen. And that's, what, that's the first part of his confession. The second part of his confession is interesting. He says, not only are you the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. You're not just another man. You're not just one, another one of these prophets, another human who has a good word to say. You are God in flesh, 100% man, but 100% God. I think the implication of what Peter is saying is you are the authority. You are the boss. Every command you give is a command I am obligated to submit myself to. It is a cry for mercy, but it is also a declaration of lordship. He's recognizing that God, that Jesus Christ is God, and he's worthy to be followed. So what gives us the stars on our bellies, the things that get us right with God, is not your church attendance. It's not your good deeds. It's not what family you came from, what color your skin is. None of these things are what God is looking for. The simple thing he wants is a confession. It's a two-part confession that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the son of the living God. He is the one that we are trusting to forgive our sins, and he is the one that we are following with reckless abandon, obeying whatever he says in our lives. Our lives are completely and wholly given in obedience to him. That's what he's looking for. That's the point of Matthew, and that's the point, I believe, of Peter's confession. You're the one I need, and you're the one I'll follow. Let's look one more time at, at Jesus' response to this. It's one of the most 
debated passages probably of the entire book of Matthew. Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. The first part of Jesus' response, it says, Peter, you're a blessed man. Not you're a smart man. Not you figured all this out, Peter. I'm pretty impressed with your intellect. You're a blessed man. And the reason you're blessed is because God has given you this knowledge. This is one of the things that should keep Christians from turning into star-bellied snitches. Right? It's what keeps us from thinking, well, now that I'm a Christian, now I can keep my nose held high. If you're saved in this room tonight, it is not because you are smart enough, good enough, in the right family, is because God has chosen to bestow his grace in you. You cannot hold yourself like a star-bellied snake. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. This is a highly debated passage, and it's one of the passages that really has split the Protestant church and the Catholic church. What do you mean Peter holds the keys to heaven? Catholics have typically interpreted this as that Peter is given some sort of a special authority, which made him the first pope, and every pope that has followed has kind of got his keys passed on by Peter, because there's a whole, there's a kind of imaginary set of keys that is being passed on along. And, and Protestants said, no, we don't believe that. And so what we said is, he's not really talking about Peter at all. And we, I mean, most Protestants. And so he's not talking about Peter at all. He's just talking about the confession that we just talked about. I don't think either of those completely gets what's happening here. It, personally, I believe that it's clear that Jesus is talking to Peter. Right, because it's really, it's his name is Simon, then he changes his name to Peter, the rock, and he says, and, and now you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church on. So what, what is happening here? Personally, I believe the best way to understand this passage is to think that it's still commenting on the whole context we've just looked at. Remember that Matthew is writing this passage, this book and this passage in general, to a Jewish audience who has turned their nose to the acceptance of a Gentile body. If you open your Bible to Acts, you don't have to do it right now, but I'll tell you, if you look in Acts, who is the apostle, the disciple, who opens the church up to the Gentiles? That's Peter. Chapter 10, Peter sees a dream from God, and God says, Everything that I've declared clean, you should not declare unclean. And he goes and tells the disciples, we got to start letting Gentiles in this church because God's declared them clean. And I think that Matthew, from this post-Acts 10 writing, he's writing after this is happening, looking back on it, he's saying that Jesus recognized that Peter's vision is going to establish for the church what Jesus had already established here in Matthew chapters 15 and 16. That this church is a Jew-Gentile group. 
And it's not based on where our heritage comes from, but it's based on the confession that we've made. So I think that Peter was right. Peter was the one who established this. But it gives us no reason to think that Peter then passed on these keys. What he's just simply saying is that when Peter said this church needs to be unlocked, opened up to the whole world, Matthew said, and Peter was right when he did that because Jesus had already done it and already showed us that was his intention. I think that that's all. I think it's a really simple, simple explanation of what's going on here is that the gospel has been opened up to you and I, even though most of us in this room are not Jewish. Because Peter recognized what Jesus had already demonstrated, that salvation comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is happy to go out of his way to go into Tyre and Sidon to save people like you and me who did not come from believing parents or grandparents or believing lineage. We did not know our Bibles. We cannot claim Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, I don't care. I love them and have compassion on them anyway. So how do we apply this? How do we walk out of here and live in a way that shows that we've grasped this passage. Let me suggest two ways. The first thing I think that if we want to look like Jesus in this passage, we have to look and see who are the outsiders. Who are the snitches with no stars that we need to go out of our way to reach out to? You never look more like Jesus than when you're reaching out to hurt and suffering people. It's what he did. And if we want to look like our Savior, then we will look for people who look just like us when we were saved. I think Rayford Road's incredible at this. I look at ministries like um, First Coast Women's Center, Celebrate Recovery, the Care Center. These are all ministries that seem to be looking specifically for people who don't necessarily feel comfortable in a church setting. They haven't grown up here. They don't have perfect attendance records. And we believe that God loves them anyway and has compassion on them and has called us to go to the people who are hurting and lost and reach out a hand on behalf of the the God who's died for them. I think, however, it would be foolish for us to say, because our church does it, I'm covered, right? Because Rayford Road as a church is pretty good about looking for hurting and suffering people in our community. I can rest on the laurels of Rayford Road and not ask myself, how do I do personally at looking like Jesus in this regard? Who do I know personally that would be a snitch with no star, would be a person who is possibly ostracized or would typically feel ostracized from a Christian community, perhaps, or even just from a middle-class community. What can I do to reach out and tell them, God loves you? Jesus would have walked out of his way to go into Tyre and Sidon because he cares for you and has compassion on you. 
think the first way we apply this passage is to get serious about our own responsibility to love the people that Jesus loved. I think the second way we apply this passage is that we ask ourselves, have we ever made the confession that Peter has made? Have you ever recognized that in your heart of hearts, you're not a star-bellied sneeze? You have nothing to recommend you. And the things that you thought recommended you are of no value. Paul says, my works were as filthy rags. There was nothing good that could recommend me to Jesus. I had to fall wholly on his mercy and his grace. Have you recognized that you are a sinner and that your only hope is that Jesus actually is who he claimed to be, that he is the Messiah who can take away the sins of the world? And not only confess that he's the Messiah, but confess that he is the son of the living God who's deserving of our allegiance. He's deserving of our wholehearted obedience and following him no matter what he asks. Joel, if you want to Come on up. I'm going to pray for us and ask us, ask God to, to convict us of those two things. And, and there may be some other things that God's working on your heart in. But I want to ask you specifically to think through, who are you reaching out to in this community, in your family, in your workplaces, that really needs to see the compassion of Jesus through you? And then the second thing I want you to ask, have I admitted that I need mercy? Have I admitted that I'm not good enough to get to heaven on my own and therefore I'll trust Christ and follow him without reservation? Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this word.